Welcome to this episode of DEI Conversations with Samir and Jen. In this podcast series, we aim to highlight changemakers that are doing amazing work around diversity, equity, inclusion in city building. My name is Jennifer Kahn, Vice President of Inclusive Diversity at Ellis Dawn, and also the Chair of the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion and Reconciliation Council at ULI Toronto. And I'm Samir Patel, Vice President at Tate Economic Research and past co-chair of the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion and Reconciliation Committee at ULI Toronto. We hope you enjoy this podcast episode as we learn about the opportunities and challenges facing the city building professionals and our industry. In today's episode, we will be speaking with Eli Bawa, Senior Public Consultation Coordinator at the City of Toronto's Parks, Forestry and Recreation Department. Eli's full bio will be included in our show notes, and to learn more about the speaker's background, please visit our website at toronto.uli.org. Can you maybe talk a little bit about yourself and, and what do you do and what brings you here today? Well, thank you for having me. My name is Eli. I'm currently a senior consultant with the City of Toronto. I'm in the Parks Department at the moment in the, a part of their um, Planning and Public Engagement Unit, so that's been fun. Previously, I was an urban planner at Urban Strategies. And then prior to that, I was a consultant with Jake Bitter. Still sort of a consultant. It's like one of those where when someone's doing really great and fun work, it's hard to like walk away from it. So from time to time, I'll just like leave myself open. So if Jay needs like help or support on projects, I'll like jump in and get a bit of like fun from there. You meet new communities and people. Personally, I do a lot of work around queer spaces in the city of Toronto, looking at ways that we can specifically secure more space for queer racialized people that are just temporary spaces or like it's an event outside. And then what I'm looking towards and working with other folks on is like securing more permanent spaces or more long-term spaces where queer racialized people can feel a sense of belonging to, feel a bit more connected to. When you walk in, it's just like, oh, I just see a bunch of queer racialized people. It seems like pretty cool. And the, the music is out, you know, we can like some music from different people's cultures, stuff like that. So like creating a different kind of a queer experience in the city that sort of goes away from like the Western nice version of queerness or what people see queerness today through media and stuff like that. Uh, thanks, Eli. That's, that, that was a great intro. I was wondering, to just sort of to start off, what part of the city do you feel, or is there a part of the city that you feel is a reflection of who you are and where you sort of feel most comfortable? Oh, that's interesting. So... It's, it's, I think it's a bit odd for me, I guess, because typically I would say Church Street or like the Church Wells, the area, because it's just, you know, that's where you can go and you can just be, or for me to be who I am in a way, or part of myself, but at the same time, no, because there is a lot of racism and discrimination within those queer communities there, right? Because it just exists everywhere. So it's sort of that weird thing. I, I feel comfortable going to Church Wells, the village, but at the same time, I don't. It's like you're going to a place that you know or you're aware that you will probably encounter some form of discrimination or racism, but you just go there anyway. It's just like, there's no options around. So it's just like, just go there and just try to like stick to your friends and then, you know, navigate that space as best as you can. But I think the sides that an alternative sometimes is like Queen Street West, because that's sort of becoming in a way or has been sort of like a lot of queer spaces that there are there. And I, I find there's a lot more queer racialized people there at times, depending on like events that are at sort of like the Gladstone Hotel, for example, that's there. If not those places, I just find like a random green space in the city and I just like make that my own little space <laughs> just to avoid any sort of potential anxieties or anything in exploring like the church ballsy area. Just like, you know, go to, I don't know, a random park near the waterfront to just like be with nature. 
one of those little cliches there. Yeah, it, it's funny. Like you say that with with a bit of a light voice. However, like yeah. when I listen to it, I sort of think that it, that's pretty stunning. The places you feel comfortable, A, have to be a, can only are the areas, I guess, that are a reflection of your queer racialized background. But so the idea that it's, it's almost mutually exclusive, that you can't find a place that is comfortable that does not have queer racialized people that go there all the time. And is that a function of the other spaces? Let's just say the financial core or, you know, Danforth or something. Is, is it simply because those spaces are inhospitable or they're just not welcoming? So I think it's where we, we get into code switching, I guess, right? I think like for many racialized people, like we all tend to code switch or we code switch at some point, maybe don't now, but you know, code switching is something that we're familiar with. It's common within our workplaces. For example, if we're in workplaces that are predominantly occupied by white people, for example, we will, you know, s- switch the way we speak or certain things we won't talk about with certain folks within the workplace, right? So we're like, we're code switching constantly. And then if we talk to, for example, for me, if I talk to my Black coworker, you know, it's a lot of kicking, laughing, using certain vernacular that I wouldn't use with a white coworker who may not under, not, may not be familiar with the terms that I would use or the, the slang that I would use. So it was constantly... Co-switching, which is an exhausting sort of process, but it's something similar that I take when I'm like going to somewhere that isn't really a queer space. Like, you know, I'm co-switching again and, you know, I'm trying to act more, you know, not too flamboyant in the space so I don't get called out or potentially harassed, right? So I guess it's sort of like co-switching is applied depending on where I am in the city just to secure my like sense of safety. I'm within that space and also like beyond safety, just so I can create my own sense of belonging in that space, right? Because often we talk about how do we make a space, you know, feel more welcoming or allow people to feel like they belong to it. And I, I feel like that's possible, but also a lot of the times we just have to do that on our own just to enter a random space that we may not be familiar with, but just make it as best as we can to make ourselves feel like we belong there or feel welcome there, even though it may not be set up that way. As a planner, are you constantly looking at the built environment of an area and are you able to to say a place for instance that isn't as welcoming are you able to look at the actual physical part of that space and say these are the reasons why i don't feel welcome here yeah absolutely when i enter certain public spaces or new parks or for example like i think i I can talk about my area so i live in Pinch is Sentinel, but closer to York University side, so like down Sentinel. And then J Pinch is just a block away or like a street away. A lot of the green spaces we have here aren't really like, it's not really paths that go to J Pinch. It's sort of like people create those paths. That's, for example, that's sort of like an example where it's like navigate these green spaces, but it's just very clear who they want to be in these spaces. That sort of goes back to the whole, you know, when people don't feel welcome somewhere, when they're not, like when a space is created, not necessarily for your community or for your neighborhood to have access to, you sort of have to forcibly create your own paths to get to gain access to that space, to use that space. And just sort of like occupying it and making your presence known, even though people may not really want you, may, may not want you to be there. So that's something like an experience that I have with a lot of public spaces in the city and even with my own, my own neighborhood. Thank you so much for that, Eli. I think, let me take a step back and just give our listeners a sense of a little bit more about who you are and what you've done. So let me just read off some of the notes that I have for you. You are a Civic Action Diversity Fellow. You are a documentarian and filmmaker. You are a fellow at the School of Cities. 
you are you were or maybe are a teaching assistant for inclusive placemaking and planning for equitable cities at the University of Detroit. And you are one of eight co-founders for MIPOC or the mentoring yes. initiative for indigenous planners of color. Yes. Tell me about that. How do you find the time <laughs> to do all of that? And what is it that drives you to do all of that work? Because that's that's mm-hmm. very impressive. And I think that we should all be taking a note out of your book and maybe taking some of your energy to get this going. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I sometimes I do question where do I find the energy to do all this? And I, I feel like, you know, when I started a lot of this, I was a lot more younger than I am today. And I often joke around with my brother that I feel like I aged myself by like 10 years by taking all these things at once. And just continuously working at the on, on them because I definitely feel like over time, oh, I'm a lot more tired today. And it's only like three o'clock what's going on. I'm really like up and about until like 11 o'clock or 12 a.m. But I think what I what I tend to do is that if, whenever I get involved in something or want to start something, I make sure that it aligns with something that I'm like really passionate about. And I, I know that's often said about by many folks, but I think it's, it's very true that it's easy to commit, overcommit to things when it's just aligns perfectly with what you strive to like sort of achieve with your goals or with your aspirations, stuff like that. And so that's what all these endeavors that I got involved with allowed me to do. Uh, you know, it may not necessarily be something that's focused on your spaces or on helping, you know, aspiring racialized planners, stuff like that, but it may be something that connects me to folks that I can then leverage those relationships to further my own personal goals, right? So like, for example, getting involved with fellowships and stuff like that, creating those connections with the folks that are also part of the fellowship, I was able to meet other city builders who I then invited into the mentorship program and then matched with aspiring planners. And then a lot of those planners got internships because I, you know, bringing in connections that I had already reestablished, right? So it's easier to have conversations about internships or get people more interested in what my pot or any personal projects that I'm working on. It's like a living strategy in a way or an ever evolving strategy that I didn't really intend to have, but it's just something that's happening. So it's like everything I get involved in comes part of my strategy that I don't really write out at all. It's just all in my head, but I just map it out. Like this could lead to this or this can um, create an opportunity here for someone else. Right. I guess that's something I also tend to do. Everything that I get involved in is never really about myself. I guess it's something I started to realize. Like I, I tend to do something or I give you, I can easily become passionate something if I know it will greatly benefit someone else. And that's something I guess like I was just raised to do. And I just, I don't know, I just, I love doing it. So I just never stopped. I'm not, I'm never tired on helping others if, if that's possible, if it's within my reach. Eli, where, where did sort of going back further a bit, mm-hmm. where, where did the passion for, or maybe oh. not passion isn't the right word, but mm-hmm. why planning school, why planning? I think, so the reason why I always got, why I wanted to get into planning growing up, I guess like even younger, I, I've been always been a part of like many communities, I guess, in a way. So being a part of the African community, being part of an Asian community, being part of a queer community, and then seeing where all of these intersect. But at the same time, I always notice that these communities are separated. Just, you know, neighborhoods and city, everything's separated. And I always been fascinated, like, just how can we just bring everyone together within these, within these cities, especially growing up in the city of Toronto? How can we just bridge sort of the borders between these various communities to where it's just a normal thing to see all these different cultures, all these different identities and all these different various unique folks just like intermingling and celebrating each other. And that's something I've always been fascinated about and how we can achieve that through how we sort of plan and design our cities. And I guess that's what I sort of sort of sparked the interest in planning for me. 
And then using sort of like the Bathurst area as an example, where it's a heavy or it's a very popular Filipino community. But within which if you explore the community, walk around the community, you do see a lot of black folks going to the Filipino stores there. I mean, everyone feels welcome there. Even myself, when I go there, um, I definitely feel welcome. And then also because I'm in, in Tagalog or stuff like that, also like it's, a, it's another great experience, but it's just like merging cultures together. It was really cool. And then seeing a bunch of queer folks as well, being that, seeing that celebrated in the Bathurst area, it's like really cool just seeing all these communities come together and seeing that how planning space plays a role in it, but how people themselves who are, may not be traditional planners are sort of taking on that role um, of community building and planning in a sense to like sort of mold the communities in what they, in the vision that they want to see and want to achieve. So I guess that's where I became interested in planning it and not necessarily in the traditional sense, but how everyone can sort of be a planner in their own right. We don't have to necessarily go through the schooling to do it. It's just, everyone is just a skilled that has expertise in city building, essentially expertise in planning in some ways. And I know you had said earlier that because of all the, all the work you're doing, you sometimes feel like you're getting older, but I'll say yeah. that I graduated from York with my master's 22 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and so I was wondering like in your, and you graduated, I believe two years, two years ago or th- three, 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 yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And, and so in your graduating class, what were sort of like the, mm-hmm. the, pl- the types of people that were there? Was it more diverse? I'll give you like 22 years ago when I left York, my master's class there, like the master's thesis were on Irish murals. I did mine sort of like on rank size rule of population. Diversity wasn't, was not, not even a word that was used. And I'm wondering in today's classes, what, what are the sort of issues, are social issues more easily talked about on campus and in class? During my time, I would say yes and no. So while I was there, I think York compared to like the three planning schools in the city tends to nowadays touch a lot more on equity and how that fits into planning, specifically looking at indigenous planning. Whereas I notice other schools don't do that at the moment or probably maybe starting since I graduated. But like at the time with my cohort, we were, there was indigenous planning sort of being introduced to the program and there's a lot of folks like exploring that. But what we did, what I did notice and all the other racialized planners, it's funny because it, like it wasn't a lot of us, I think like at, with that cohort, I think like maybe within my year, I want to say about 10 people of like the 35 planners were racialized. And then of those 10, I think half were women. And then I think only two of us or three of us were black. And then, and no one was indigenous and one person was Muslim. And that's it. So it's like, sort of like, we sort of formed our own group, like sort of acknowledging that we're sort of a smaller amount, like we're, we're just a small group of racialized folks compared to everyone else in the program. And we sort of had a lot of conversations to sort of like conversations amongst ourselves, like just Really, I don't know if it's like something that we intentionally do, but it just sort of happens where it's like when someone asks, answers a question in regards to how they plan for cities, for example, we'll like judge and be like, they're sort of leaving out, you know, like how about, I think we're talking about public engagement, right? And how that fits into planning. And someone was just going through that, you know, we'll have one public engagement and then we'll start the design process and blah, blah, blah. And then like amongst ourselves, we're just like, I don't think that that's how that should work. That's too simple. You're not even touching upon all these communities, you know? And it's, I felt it was always like, us that were raising our hands to be like, well, you know, you're sort of uh, leaving out like working moms or, you know, people who can't attend public meetings because that's like pre-COVID. So it's like, you know, a lot of folks who are low income and racialized cannot attend a 12 p.m. meeting or like a five o'clock meeting because they go from one job to another job, for example, or, you know, some folks can't afford to travel all the way to Metro Hall 
for that meeting in the really fancy boardrooms there, right? Or for example, one public meeting is just not good enough as well. You know, you should have multiple meetings, have, you know, a black advisory group, for example, that's necessary if you look at the demographics of the area, right? And, and that's something you should also be doing, right? So like, I feel like we are always, it was, it's, it's supposed to be a funny sort of, I guess, situation to where like the non-racialized planners or the white planners in the classroom would like answer a question and then the racialized planners would follow up and be like, and to add on to that, but then like adding on completely dismantling their answer, but then like rebuilding it to like something that's a bit more inclusive and includes all the different perspectives that they missed. It was sort of what we sort of went through during my year. And then I think from that, I also started something in during the year. It's like, I, I always wanted to bring the universities together because I also, I always hated how um, there's like the three planning programs in the city of Toronto, but we, there was not really a chance to mingle with each other. And I was like, this is, we should, because in the future, these are going to be people we can work with. It'll be great to get to know who's at these other schools. And secretly, I also wanted to know if there's other racialized writers at the other schools because our school is so small. So I like sort of set up this, this tri-university social is what I called it. I and mean, I organized it amongst Ryerson, U of T, and York. And we just like, it was like three major events. So York hosted one and we forced everyone to come up north. And um, that was like so a bit of a struggle with the, the down uh, people who were living downtown did do it in the end, which is great. And then U of T hosted theirs, Ryerson hosted theirs. And it was great because a lot of those people that I met at those socials, um, I'm, I'm still friends with today and some I work with as well. But we also realized at U of T, there's only two racialized planning students. You know, there were two black students. And Ryerson, I believe, had like less than five. But it was great because when we all got together, it was sort of like that was those moments where you could cry that moment because you're just like, especially for the U of T Ryerson students who had far less racialized students in their programs. It was like, you almost cried them up, just like, oh, there's other people who are interested in what I'm doing and, you know, sort of share similar ideas. And, you know, it's not just a conversation about me talking about my interest and then explaining the history of that interest because someone doesn't get it. It's like you just explain something, you get it, and you just have a conversation that continues from there. So it was great. It was great to bring all the planning schools together, and then also especially to have all the racialized students come together from the three planning universities. But I have heard since that, like, York especially is doing much better to where I think their cohort that graduated last year, fifty almost I think 50% of the planners were racialized. And then 50% weren't. So they were like, it's a much higher number, especially in comparison to the other schools. It was great to see that. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly power in community and power in the fact that mm -hmm. we share some similar experiences and bringing people together to share their story, share their lessons learned, to try to figure out what the next steps are. Along those lines, my question to you then is kind of given the, the last statement that you just made around more diversity in planning programs. Are you hopeful for the future? Do you think that city building, do you think that planning is going to change as we start to get more diverse talent through the industry? I would love to say yes, <laughs> but I think in reality, no. At the moment, no, my answer will be no in this current moment. I think like, if I'm going to be completely honest, and I know this sort of like shades a bit of uh, a lot of, you know, companies or firms that are, that are trying to, you know, improve their diversity efforts when it comes to hiring and stuff like that. But the reality is that diversity didn't really noticeably change for a lot of firms, not all, but for a lot of planning firms and design firms until the George Floyd incident, right? Which is a bit sad. And to, to see that, like, you know, it took a huge, like, you know, it took not even the first of course, but like it took a black man's death and then a huge social media, media search surrounding it for a lot of firms to be like, hmm, maybe we should have a black person here. You know, or hmm. Maybe like, you know, this one Asian person is not going to, you know, fulfill our diversity quota. Maybe we should, you know, bring in some more folks, more perspectives and stuff like that. Right. So I, don't, I think I, 
and then seeing that and then now noticing that it's sort of like dying down a bit where it's just like not a lot of firms like they're so local in the past and put out statements and i was like wow this is really cool what's happening but then today like looking back and like you know i like me personally i know a couple of my other friends who are planning to do this too where we keep a tabs of all the firms who like put a statement out during the year of when george floyd was murdered and we sort of like go back to those firms today and be like, so what have they said since? There was just a lot of them was just like silence and like back to like the same old, same old kind of thing. And, you know, sort of seeing that, that, that pattern now happening where it's a lot of firms going back to their old ways where it's just like, you know, we had the surge of racialized planners and now we're going to cut it back kind of thing, right? You know, and it's just sort of, I don't think that's how it should go because like there's a lot of racialized planners who are very skilled and super qualified, some over qualified for their roles. And they deserve to not just be seen as some of the quota or just to put on their website to like folks visiting and can see like, you know, oh, they do have diversity, you know. And even then it's not enough because like at the entry level, it's not where racialized planners should just exist, right? You should really be looking at, the, you know, your senior senior levels and more of the leadership levels, principal levels, partner levels. And that's really where, you know, racial diversity, cultural diversity should exist. Because, you know, for younger planners like myself, we put ourselves on the line when we try to like, you know, advocate for what we want to see in the planning industry, especially within our workplace. And I did that while I was at my previous firm. And they were really great at like hearing my feedback and incorporating a lot of what I was sharing along with some other folks that were at that firm into their future plans and strategies. And even till this day, I like I check in and I say, how are they doing on like, you know, their promise to do this and they're following up on it and they're investing into various nonprofits who like, you know, boys and girls clubs and stuff like that. Things that can really, you know, support someone throughout their educational journey. So like investing into scholarships and existing scholarships and not trying to create their own scholarships, which I feel like is another really important note I like to make. It's like, I really like it when I see firms invest into existing scholarships that assist folks who are either low status or racialized and not try to reinvent or create something new because I feel like it's a bit more genuine when you invest in something that exists rather than you know creating a new scholarship just so you can have your name on the, the award or something like that so that's something that that my previous firm is doing which is great to see but I, I'm not hopeful or not hopeful wrong word but I so far the future is not as promising as I would like it to be when it comes to continued efforts to you know for firms to have more of an inclusive outlook in the way that they plan, the way they design, the way they approach public engagement, I feel like there's a lot more improvements that need to be made, especially looking at how we can increase the, uh, or introduce those kind of perspectives amongst the partners and principals would have a lot more power, especially when talking to developers or other external partners on advocating for various groups that often aren't at that at those meetings or ever at the table. You're, you're uh, one of the co-founders of of MIPOC, which is the mentorship mm -hmm. initiative for in Indigenous and planners of color. I wonder, is has there been a common denominator through through that work in terms of the challenges you've identified for young planners coming up? Is there one thing you could point mm -hmm. to that this is the one issue that they all face? Yeah. So I always thought for before starting MIPOC, getting to MIPOC and with folks like Abigail Mariah. And so Abigail Mariah, who's a amazing planner and city builder who's now venturing into starting her own uh, practice. She's previously at a senior level for housing firm, but uh, you folks might know Abigail Bryant too. And then also Benjamin Mongolin. So at the start, actually, maybe I should explain how my pop actually was born to start. So it's, it's, it was interesting because York invited a lot of planners every week. There was like a course that we took that just like sort of meet city builders kind of thing. So every week they'll invite a planner or a city builder to speak to the class about what they do. And, um, as sort of like 
providing advice on like navigating the professional or the, the client sector, city building sector. And every speaker we would get was white. So like it would go from one week to another week to another week to another week. And it was always a white person who was working planning, speaking to us. And he had great insights to share with us. Uh, I mean, took notes and it was great to hear. But it was three months of just like, you know, listening and seeing uh, white planners and white city builders come in. And I think myself and Benjamin Bungal, who was a classmate of mine at the time, so as well as Muhammad, a few other racialized planners, we were just, eventually we started to pick up on that. We started just like, like asking ourselves, so when is a racialized person going to come speak to us? And we sort of started to have doubts about like, do we exist in this, like in the industry? And that's, I think at the time we started Googling and looking at like different verbs being like, who has like a bunch of like, you know, racialized planners like that. It wasn't many at, at that time. And then. Finally, the last speaker who came to speak to us was Abigail Mariah. And I think it was, it was funny. I feel like it's one of those moments where it's just like, like, you know, you're sort of like down and you're just like, gotta get to this class. And Abigail walks in, it's just like sun rays and like the oh, 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 moment kind of thing. And everyone just like perks up and it's like, oh my God, fix your shirt. We this the you know, business is starting, you know, class is actually starting today. But it was so funny in that moment. We all just like, we're just so happy to see Abigail. I felt like we were like um, fans. From, we're like five-year fans, even though we just barely know her in that moment. But she spoke to us about what she did, and she even started to talk touch upon like you know racism that she faced in the workplace, and also the amount of racialized planners that exist within the city and stuff like that. Just touching on topics that we didn't really get to hear; it wasn't a part of our curriculum, of course. So it was just really great to hear that honesty, and and then seeing the non-racialized planners in, in the class like just being confused and then asking questions about what does she mean about certain terms, and what does she mean that there aren't like many racialized people in the planning sector and stuff like that, and. It was great to see Abigail just like break it down and be super honest with them about what the reality is. So then from there, like Benjamin and myself approached Abigail after class, just like sort of fangirling a little bit with thanking her for being there. And sort of the idea of starting my pot came from that conversation. And then Abigail and Ben, I think Ben started like sort of an internship with Abigail and started creating like a bit of like the foundations for it. So it's like spreading through like, you know, um, how to secure grant funding stuff like that and then i came on assisting and sort of like creating the, the, the frameworks and the groundwork for it and then yeah and then we invited two planners who had plenty of students from rise and two planning students from U of T because abigail really wanted to make sure that it was sort of students who were about to be junior planners that were sort of a part of that sort of executive body or that leadership team and yeah so that's sort of like from there my talk just became to be. And then we had our first cohort and it went really well. It was also great to see the people that were interested in being mentors at the time for the program. Like there were directors or partners or principals at first, people that we wouldn't think would care at the time. But it's sort of like what we noticed is that there are a lot of folks, especially during that time, which is like three years ago, which is not even long ago, but it's just sort of shows, goes to show how much the social scene sort of changes so quickly within the industry. But like there are people that you wouldn't expect to care, but it's, it's noticed that those who are supportive of what we're doing, but weren't really comfortable being vocal just yet. So like the way they're supporting is being a mentor, right? It's sort of like behind the scenes, assisting like, you know, racialized mentees and stuff like that, who are interested in getting in planning. And then over time, we, we noticed that we got to teach them various things like, you know, how do you advocate? So my talk is not just a mentorship program, but we also help mentors who aren't comfortable or familiar with how they can, you know, support what we stand for in their workplaces. You know, we, we sort of help them in, how they could do that or teach them sort of in a way how they could do that. So sort of like, how do you advocate for a junior staff who's racialized who might be, you know, going through a very comfortable situation or maybe feeling that they're not really included within the work that's going on within the workplace and stuff like that. Or, you know, 
how do you do that without them having to come to you first? Like, you know, how do you see the signs? Like we so those sort of things that we talk about, right? And like, you know, how do you move away from allyship to like sort of being an accomplice in a way, right? Because allyship has definitely become this sort of term or this role that people use. And although it has good intentions, of course, but it sort of became this role where people can say, I'm an ally. And then silence, right? Whereas an accomplice is much different because you're in there, you're at risk of, you're afraid of getting in trouble. You're not afraid of hurting people's feelings because, you know, we're at a point where, you know, we talk about race, we talk about inclusivity, especially within city building. I think it's at this point, we have to become getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, right? And we have to worry less about how people will feel if you were to call them in on something, right? And more about the impact that it can have by calling them in and how that may change your perspective or how they may speak to people in the future and stuff like that, right? So those are things that we all talk about, that we talk about in my walkthrough sessions that are led by Abigail or by speakers that we invite to lead those sessions, speak to the mentors and the mentees. So yes, yeah, so a lot of learning pieces within the program besides mentoring. And yeah, like so far, I feel like the mentees all love it. We have two, we had two cohorts. Right now, we, we took sort of a year off just to, like we are sort of reevaluating a lot of our processes and doing a lot of like branding changes, stuff like that. And then like we're watching again towards the end of this year um, and securing new speakers and stuff like that. But yeah, like so far, the past cohorts have really enjoyed the program. A lot of, some of them have gotten jobs from their mentor relationships, which is really great. It's not like our intention, but it's great. It's always lovely to see that it's something that happens. And then, or a lot of them even get to understand what they actually want to do when it comes to planning. Because I feel like, especially with aspiring planning students, they, they are not aware yet that planning is just so many things sometimes too many things I feel like but it's like so many things you can do in planning and they get to learn all of that by speaking to their mentors and we match them up with their interests as well like that um yeah. I mean it certainly sounds like my POC is having the impact that it intended and perhaps even more so my question to you is you talked a little bit about moving people from allyship to being accomplices hmm. and when we start talking about putting people in buckets or silos. So to say, you're, okay, you're an Asian, you belong here. You're a woman, you belong here. You're straight, you belong here. How do you start to create those intersections? But more specifically, how do you start to move the majority of the group or the dominant group from allyship to accomplices? And so that might be a bit of a loaded question, but what would be your advice to somebody who's like, okay, I want to be, I know I'm an ally because I want to do good. I want to treat people well. I want to be open to biases or privilege or what have you but what is that next step to go from ally to accomplice yeah no absolutely but i think what i what i tend to tend or tell people is to move from allyship to accomplice it really has to go with i think folks who claim that they're an ally tend to not have had a real conversation with the group that they're supporting yet right they're usually folks who are just listening like they attend a webinar or they attend a, a public event and they're just listening Right. And from there, they assume that they're an ally. But until they have a real conversation, for example, from my own experience, like someone speaking to me and it's very clear and evident that they don't really know much about what I'm like advocating for. They're just there to support because they want to spread love. And that's great. But folks who like, you know, come and they actually start to ask you questions about what you go through, what your lived experience is. Right. Because they, they won't understand it if you're not a part of that group. Um, um, or certain things that you also lived your, your, have gone through in your life as well, because there's also that whole reality that you know all, not all black people go through the same thing, or not all people go through the same things. So there's still a lot of nuances that you have to understand, but that's what an ally won't understand. And then as soon as you understand those things, that's when you can sort of become an accomplice. Do you understand the nuances 
that exists amongst the group that you sort of want to support and sort of all the little avenues, the different avenues that people go down, depending on who they are and the different identities that intersect for them, you won't really understand the movement that is happening there. And you can't really become an accomplice until you understand that movement wholeheartedly and not just what you read on paper or the headlines. And again, like, you know, being an ally is not a terrible, but it's also not helping as much as one may think they are. And it's until you become an accomplice and like, for example, you're able to actually describe what's the difference between a black queer person and what they go about in life and between just a heterosexual black person, right? Until you understand that difference, it's hard to, you know, claim that you are like, you know, an ally or an accomplice, right? Because an accomplice is able to describe that difference and give you an example, point to examples and stuff like that as well. And, and I practice that myself as well. Like when it comes to indigenous issues, like that's something that I'm definitely learning up on my own and stuff like that. But I will never call myself an accomplice when it comes to indigenous issues. I know I don't know enough yet, right? And that's something I'm growing and making a commitment to knowing more of. So eventually I can become more of that accomplice where I could you know, be in certain spaces or be in certain rooms and I can advocate appropriately on behalf of these people if they're not present there, right? And that someone's speaking to them in a way that is for ill-informed or wrong and I have actual facts and information that I can provide to them rather than just being like, you're wrong, that's not right kind of thing and not really giving it, being able to give a reason why, um, right? So it's, it's, it's less imp impactful when you're sort of an ally in that sense, but it's not wrong. It's just more impactful if you're an accomplished accomplice you know a lot more and you're able to have that, a bigger impact in certain circles i love that 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 idea of becoming an accomplice and like learning more about something i also like that you clarified that you can be an ally to one group and an accomplice to other and an ally to another group and so it's not just one yeah. blanket term and perhaps i'm taking the easier way out or maybe the harder way but my philosophy is nothing for us without us like across the board, I don't want to have to be the voice of something that I'm not. We should just bring yes. in. And so mm -hmm. in some cases that can be more challenging because there isn't a lot of diversity at those decision-making places. But at the same time, someone's going to draw a line. If that's got to be me to say, I'm not going to be the one to represent something that I don't personally have experience with. Maybe that's your next best solution, but that's not the solution we should be shooting for. Absolutely. And I definitely agree. It's one thing I also like have, have experienced, like having to do myself where when it comes to, I guess specifically when it comes to diverse, like not diverse guys, but when it comes to those hiring posts where in the description it says like, you know, we would love if you are a racialized person or we would love if you come from these sort of equity groups, stuff like that. And I have good intentions, but I think the difference is when you get into the position and they let you know that you are now the equity lead. And it's just like, of, of what? Of <laughs> equity, of all equity? Because that's impossible if that's what you intend for me to do, right? So it's like having those real conversations. I have had those real conversations as well where I'm hired and then finding out that they wanted me to be an equity lead in something or in everything really is what they mean. And, and just have to clarify with them that that's great that you see me in that way. I appreciate it. It's humbling. Thank you. But really when it comes to certain conversations, if I don't know all about that conversation, I will suggest and really push for us to bring someone into the conversation who will know what they're talking about. Cause I'm not going to pretend that I can talk about indigenous issues. And then someone asks me a very particular question. And then I'll say, let me Google that for you. <laughs> it's like, I shouldn't have had the conversation to begin with. I should have started off with 
you know, let's bring in this group or different indigenous organizations and they can definitely speak to you about the experience that they have or the strategies that they have already to answer any questions you may have. And then you can pay them as well for that, for their knowledge. That's really great. Thanks, Eli. We're, we're coming to the end of our podcast and we end every podcast with, with a simple question. And I'm really fascinated with your answer because for somebody who, who doesn't feel necessarily represented and safe in a lot of parts of the city, but the question is, if there was somebody who came to visit you, whether a family friend or, or sort of one of your contemporaries, and it was the first time to the city, where would you take them and, and why would you take them there? So I guess it, it still definitely depends on who the person is for sure. But I guess if I'm using the example, maybe these two examples, but one example, if I have a friend, a queer friend is coming to the city, I probably wouldn't take them to Church Wellesley first, and neither would I take them to Mean Street once first. I would take them to a queer home party is what I like to call them, right? I feel like those tend to be the best places for queer racialized folks. I mostly have queer racialized friends when it comes to my queer friends. So if most likely it might be a pretty friend that comes to visit, but if not, then I still will take them to the party because why not? But it would be like back in the day, we used to have a few queer spaces within the, the city of Toronto that were for racialized people. We had the Black Coalition of AIDS, which is Black Cap. We had the Asian Community AIDS Services, ACAS, and we had the, the Archives, which is like Archives spelled with A-R-Q-U-I-V-E-S, which still exists. I believe it's like along, but majority of the queer racialized spaces are not, are not around today, especially the permanent ones specifically. Right. But a popular one that existed back then was Zami. And that was located at 101 Dawson. And it was a permanent queer space, but it was within someone's home. So it wasn't actually like an establishment or anything like that or commercial. Like, you know, it was nothing like that. Uh, it was just someone's home. And then I think that sort of speaks to sort of the, the permanent space that exists for queer space, space for racialized people. And I put in permanent air quotes. Well, those best spaces tend to be just within someone's home, within a space that someone has curated and created for themselves to feel celebrated. And likewise, for people who look like them or who share similarities to them to feel celebrated as well. That's where I probably would take them first and then bring them to, to Church Wellesley Village or Queen Street West with the preface that like, you know, this may happen. Just so you know, it's happened in the past. It has happened recently. It happens all the time. But just so you know, this may happen. But at least you had this amazing experience surrounded by what we call family you know, second family spurs before we go into what potentially could be a good night or a bad night or a good evening or a bad evening, depending on who we speak to or who we encounter within the space that we go to. I guess that's sort of like the reality when it comes to even just racialized people, not just queer racialized people that, you know, whenever you go to a space or you enter a space, many things happen, but you mentally prepare yourself that like you may encounter someone who might not be the most welcoming to who you are, you know, to your identity or, you know, immediately when you go through, you just scan it right away. Who's in this room? I feel like that's something that a lot of racist people tend to do, queer people tend to do as well. Even women tend to do as well. Who may not, like have friends who are like white women and they scan the room and they scan the room for particular things. They scan the room of how many men are in the room or for racist people, how many racist people are in the room. For queer people, they just scan the room. <laughs> it's like sometimes they scan the room, I know, to see like if there's someone who's like obviously or not overt, like overtly might be queer and then they go like sort of be with them. So like sort of like scanning the room to find where your safety pockets might be depending on who's there. That's, so that's that. But if it's like a family friend who comes over or family comes over, depends on also what side of the family they're coming over. But they're coming from my dad's side. Um, I'd probably go with my dad and go somewhere that's like near the water because from my dad's side, we love water, we love nature. So I'll probably take them somewhere there and not like a busy restaurant because they probably complain a lot about being somewhere that's like busy and packed. And I would rather 
avoid that criticism. So I'll just take them to somewhere like really nice in the open. But if it's from my mom's side, I would take them to somewhere that reminds them of home. Because from experience growing up, whenever I had family come from the Philippines, or even with my mom, whenever I take my mom out to eat, if it's not a Filipino joint, she'll just critique the food nonstop. And it's be like, why'd you bring me? <laughs> the thing is like, well, you wanted to come here first and now you don't want to come here, be here because you don't like the food. But I always take them to like a Filipino pocket or enclave within the city, just so they have a little piece of home and then bring them to all the touristy spots, I guess. Trying to avoid maybe the CN Tower because that's a bit too touristy for me. <laughs> Eli, thank you so much for all of your wonderful answers. And they were so thoughtful. And, and honestly, I just think that the the world is your oyster. You've got so much ahead of you. You've already done so much. And the thing that I've always, always loved about you, and it's so crystal clear the second that you meet you, is just the positivity. And although, oh, you, may not, although you may not yet be hopeful for our future, I think that people like you are going to get us there. And so... Samir and I, again, thank you so much for being with us today. We could probably talk forever around yes. what you've been doing and things that we'd like to do. But unfortunately, that is the end of our time with you today. But congratulations for all that you've done. And please continue to rally people to yes. come accomplish and do more and not really. just listen. Yes, absolutely. Thank you both. <laughs>